faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 224 of Arthur the Bible in One Year segment. So just a brief reminder of what you should have read to be prepared for this day. You should have read Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 15 through chapter 5 verse 13. You should have read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 25 through 40. You should have read Psalm 32 1 through 11 and Proverbs 21 verses 5 through 7. So what we're going to be focusing on on day 224 is we're going to be focusing on Acts 18 verses 18 through 28. So what we have now, so we have now officially covered two of Paul's three missionary journeys. We have seen Paul take the gospel from Asia into Europe, and now today we're going to see Paul begin his third and last recorded missionary journey, which will take us through most of the rest of the book of Acts. Now we're going to pick up Acts chapter and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. So, Caesarea was the port city of Corinth, and Paul was awaiting a ship there. But before Paul departed, we're told that he cut his Strengthening all 
Julia Paulus, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their homes and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Acacia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he rigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So this section officially begins Paul's third missionary journey, which is that he leaves to visit the churches that he established on his first Right, which is Acts 13 to 14, and the second, which is Acts 15 through 1536 to 1822. So those are his two journeys. However, Paul would never lead people into a relationship with Christ. He never started churches and then forgot about them. So he was just as concerned with following up on new believers and helping them grow in their relationship with God as he was about planting and starting churches. Understand that? So, so what are we saying here? What we're saying here is that all new Christians should receive immediate contact and ongoing encouragement from more experienced and more mature Christians at the start of their relationship with God. Because this provides an opportunity for these mature and experienced Christians to pray with the new believers and to help them to learn and to learn to study and apply God's word and also helps connect them with others in the church so they can establish a practice of meaningful worship, of prayer, of ministry of God's word, and the exercise of their spiritual gifts to serve others in the church. So now we understand what's going on. Now we see why Paul's going on this third missionary journey. Now let's see what's actually happening in this text, right? So apparently, while Paul was in transit, Aquila and Priscilla met a man named Apollos. See, Apollos was an eloquent man. So he was like the elite rhetoricians of the day. He was like the elite speakers, the, the elite people that would make arguments during that day. And he did have accurate information about Christianity, and he did preach the truth about Jesus. But he, unfortunately, he only knew of John's baptism, which was not Christian baptism, but a ritual baptism of repentance in preparation for the Messiah. So what's the difference? So Christian baptism is related to that, but it symbolizes the believer's entrance into the kingdom by participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but then walk in 
also need some further instruction. And even though his salvation was not in that, and he received that further instruction, and then he went on to be a major force in the early church. And, and so, because he was steeped in the Old Testament, he would then go on to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, and he did that in Acacia or Greece. And so, what else we're gonna what we're gonna pick up with now? Tomorrow, we're gonna pick up with Paul returning to Ephesus because he went to Ephesus for a brief time at the very beginning of this, at the very beginning of this entire thing, right? And so, we don't know exactly how long he was in Ephesus that first time. But now, we're gonna send Paul going to Ephesus for the second time when he's in to tomorrow. So here's what you need to read to be prepared for that. You need to read Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14 through 7, verse 72, 1 Corinthians 8, Psalm 33, 1 through 11, and Proverbs 21, 8 through 10. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 225 of our through the Bible in one year segment. So what you should have read to be prepared for this segment is you should have read Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 14 through chapter 7 verse 72. You should have read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You should have read Psalm 33 1 through 11. You should have read Proverbs 21 verses 8 through 10. So our focus for today is going to be on Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 22. So what we saw yesterday was we saw Paul begin his third and last recorded missionary journey. And so today we're going to see Paul's return to Ephesus. This will be the place that Paul would return to a third time as the book of Acts comes to a close. This will be a place that was near and dear to Paul's heart. It would become kind of his base of operations. we get into what's going on here, right? We need to understand a little bit about the city of Ephesus. So the city of Ephesus was an ancient port city whose well-preserved ruins are in modern-day Turkey. So this city was once considered the most important Greek city and the most important trading center in the Mediterranean region. Throughout history, Ephesus survived multiple attacks and changed hands many times between various different conquerors. So it was also a hotbed of early Christian evangelism. It remains an important archaeological site and an important Christian pilgrimage destination. So let's answer several. So let's deal with a little bit about Ephesus, right? So where is Ephesus? So as we already said, it's located in modern-day Turkey. It was precisely it's located near the western shores of modern-day Turkey, where the Aegean Sea meets the former estuary of the river Kestros, and it's about 80 kilometers south of Izmir, Turkey, right? So according to legend, the Ionian priest Androclos founded Ephesus in about the 11th century BC. So this legend says that Androclos 
and 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 draw close. So Trinu Greek settlement being turned to the Delphi oracles for guidance. So the oracles told him a boar and a fish and show him the new location. So one day as Andrew Close was frying fish over an open fire, a fish flopped out of the frying pan and landed in the nearby bushes. So a spark ignited the bushes and a wild boar ran out. Calling the oracles wisdom, Andrew, C- Andrew Close built his new settlement. The bushes stood and called it Ephesus. In another legend, says Ephesus was founded by the Amazons, a tribe of female warriors, and that the city was named after their queen, Ephesia. So that's kind of a background of how Ephesus got its start, right? So now let's deal with what we're going to see a great deal of about tomorrow, that would be the Temple of Artemis, right? So let's deal with that, let's get a good understanding of what Paul's going to be dealing with now when he gets into Ephesus, right? Or what he dealt with before, now what he's going to deal with again, right? So he's going to be dealing with this temple called of Artemis. So, much of Ephesians' ancient history is unrecorded, and it is sketchy. So, what is known is that in the 7th century BC, Ephesus fell under the rule of the Lydian kings. It became a thriving city, where men and women enjoyed equal opportunities. It was also the birthplace of the renowned philosopher Heraclitus. So the Lydian king Croeus, who ruled from 560 BC to 547 BC, was most famous for funding the rebuilding of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. So Artemis was the goddess of the hunt, chastity, childbirth, wild animals, and the wilderness. She was also one of the most revered Greek deities, and she was the, her Roman equivalent would have been Diana. So, modern day excavations have revealed, right, that three smaller Artemis temples preceded the Croesus Temple. So, in about 356 BC, a crazed man named Herostrosos burned down the Temple of Artemis, and the Ephesians rebuilt the temple even bigger. It was estimated to be four times larger than the Parthenon, which would be the great temple complex that we hear about in Athens. So, four times larger than that, and the Parthenon still stands. So, four times larger than that. I imagine a temple four times bigger than that. It's pretty dang big. And became known as one of the seven wonders of the world. This temple was later destroyed, and it was never rebuilt. So, a little remains of it today. Although, some of its remains. Some of its remnants, excuse me, do reside in the British Museum, including a column with Croesus' signature. So, now we've kind of dealt with the Temple of Artemis, so let's talk about the fact that it now goes into the Persian Empire. So, in about 546 BC, Ephesus fell to the Persian Empire, along with the rest of Anatolia. So, Ephesus continued thrive, even, even as other Ionian cities rebelled against Persian rule. 
334 BC Alexander the Great defeated the Persians and entered Ephesus. So upon his death in 323 BC, one of his generals, Lysimachus, took over the city and renamed it Arsenia. Just moved Ephesus two miles away and built a new harbor and new defensive walls. But the Ephesian people would not be located and remained in their homes until Lysimachus forced them to move. So in about 281 BC, this man was killed in the, at the Battle of Corruptium, and the city was again named Ephesus. So in 263 BC, Ephesus fell under Egyptian rule along with much of the Seleucid Empire. So the Seleucid king Antiochus III took back Ephesus in 196 BC. But however, after being defeated at the Battle of Magnesia six years later, Ephesus fell under Pergamon rule. So we're kind of seeing what we're talking about here. So Ephesus has been conquered, reconquered, conquered, reconquered, conquered, reconquered. Now it's about ready to be conquered a second time. Now it's about ready to be conquered by the Romans. So in 129 BC, King Anatolius of Pergamon left Ephesus to the Roman Empire in his will. The city became the seat of the regional Roman governor. So the reforms that Caesar Augustus put in place Ephesus to its most prosperous time, which lasted until the third century A.D. So, which lasted until about the 480s. That's really, really, really important to know. So, most of the Ephesian ruins that we see today, such as the enormous amphitheater, the Library of Seleucus public square or the Agora and the aqueducts were built during this time period were built during Augustus's reign. So during the reign of Tiberius, Ephesus flourished as a port city. So this is the time period that we are now in, right? In the book of Acts, we're in the time period of the reign of Tiberius. So this was a so it had a business district opened around 43 BC to serve the masses, massive amounts of goods arriving or departing from the man-made harbor and from caravans traveling the ancient royal road. So according to some sources, this is the key point here, right? Ephesus was the second was second only to Rome as a cosmopolitan center of culture and commerce, which is why Paul spent so much time there. So now we come to the important part of all of this, right? Christianity in Ephesus, right? So we already know that Ephesus played a vital role in the spread of Christianity. So starting in about the first century AD, we see such notable Christians as Paul and John visiting and rebuking the cults of Artemis. Winning many Christian converts in the process. Right, so we're about ready to see some of that happen right now. And you also know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is thought to have spent her last years in the city of Ephesus with John. We know that her house and John's tomb can be visited there today. We 
uh, Ephesus is mentioned multiple times throughout the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, written around AD 60, is thought to be a letter from Paul to the Ephesian Christians, although there are some who will debate that source, and we'll get into that in greater detail when we get into talking about the book of Ephesians. However, not every Ephesian was open to Paul's Christian message. In chapter 19, we're about ready to get into in Acts, tell of a riot started by a man named Demetrius. You just see Demetrius made silver coins featuring the likeness of Artemis. And so, Demetrius, growing tired of Paul's tax on the goddess he worshipped, worried the spread of Christianity would ruin his trade. So Demetrius plotted a raid and enticed a large crowd to turn against Paul and his disciples. However, the Ephesian officials protected Paul and his followers, and eventually Christianity became the city's official religion. So now that we kind of have this brief history of the city of Ephesus up until this point in time, now we can actually dig into our passage. So we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 7 to start off with. So here's what that says. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, What baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. So Paul's discovery of some disciples in Ephesus is in stark contrast to Apollos, because you see, Apollos only needed more instructions. Well, these disciples here in Ephesus of John the Baptist needed salvation, as indicated by baptism. So apparently their information about Jesus was insufficient or was completely non-existent. Right? So they confessed their ignorance of the Holy Spirit, right? But it was not that they, 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 they excuse me, their confession of ignorance of the Holy Spirit was not ignorance of his existence, but of his outpouring, right? So the divine line between Apollos and these disciples was correct information about Jesus. And their speaking in tongues only after Paul laid hands on them is similar to what happened to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And see, like the Samaritans, these disciples represented a significant group. People who had only received a portion of God's revelation, and not the final and full revelation of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. So, Luke included the story of Apollos and his disciples in the face of an ongoing issue in the early church, right? So, what was that issue, right? So, the followers of John the Baptist had apparently developed their own movement apart from the followers of Christ, right? And this sect lasted into the 4th century AD. But these followers of John the Baptist could not 
rightly, but John Gooseman and John couldn't rightly follow Glass one received Christ to whom John had pointed, and that was the big issue here. They didn't know about it because they were following the one who was the messenger, not the one who was the savior. So now let's move on to verse 8 and take it on through verse 10, which says this, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe him publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the, the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so for the first three months of Paul's days of stay in Ephesus, he was able to preach in the synagogue with great success, but then his opponent, like they almost always seem to do, turned to character assassination and quite possibly blasphemy regarding Christianity. So at this point in time, Paul seems to form a debate with them, right? So the vigil that we see against him was evidence of a hardened attitude, right? So what does Paul do? Paul takes the disciples that he had made to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So what we need to understand here is that all education in antiquity was private. There were no quote-unquote public schools in antiquity. They were all private schools, privately funded, privately endowed, and privately taught. So philosophers who were the teachers of that day would recruit students to pay to listen to their lectures. That's how they made their money. That's how they made their living was to recruit people who would come and pay to hear them lecture. So this lecture hall that Paul goes to either belonged to Tadanus or he was the most famous lecturer there. We don't know which one it is. We're not told, and it really doesn't matter. What does matter is that Paul was using it when Tyrannus was not. So apparently this was a great arrangement because Paul spoke there for two years with great success. So we're told that all those in the province of Asia heard the gospel, which probably means that the gospel was proclaimed throughout the province. Throughout the province, 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 excuse me. So this spread happened through the believers obediently taking the gospel to the towns there. And so the notation there is, the, the notation of this is another signal, the signal that another movement in the scripture, excuse me, the notation is also a signal that another movement in the geographic spread of the gospel was about to take place. So now let's move on to verses 11 and 12, right, which say this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. 
Once the Orbis Infinite Pause Ministry was one of the unique power. So in verse 12, right, the handkerchiefs and aprons are Latin loan words from the commercial world, which suggests Paul was doing a lot of work in Ephesus as well. So we can only imagine Paul's surprise and joy when he heard of such healings and exorcisms that only happened because Paul was full of the Spirit, and so they were able to take these things that he had used and use them to heal people, not because they had some special magical power, but because the person to whom they belonged had been full of the Spirit, right? And so, we also, so again, we see Paul's apostolic ministry was one of unique power beyond anything seen today. So now let's pick up in verse 13 and take it through verse 16. Okay. So here's what that says. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So this success-fueled fame led to the unauthorized and the illegitimate attempts to appropriate Christian authority. So what we need to understand here is that Roman exorcists were not uncommon in antiquity. They were not uncommon in antiquity. Why? Because a lot of things that we would associate with mental illness, with other diseases, they associated with demon possession and they needed people who were quote-unquote experts at exorcising these demons to come and drive them out. So they would roam about looking for people to exorcise demons from. So now we see seven sons of a high priest, Sceva, were among these roaming exorcists. So, who was Sceva? Sceva was probably a member of the priestly aristocracy living outside Jerusalem. So what happened? So these people, these seven sons, attempted to use the name of Paul and Jesus as essentially an incantation to control a demon. That's not how exorcism works. It's not some incantation that makes the demon leave. It's the power of God that's coming out through the spirit-filled believer and it's driving that demon out. It's not because you say some magical words. So it's not because you say, hocus pocus, abracadabra, leave this man in the name of Jesus. No, 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 no. You actually have to have some spiritual force behind those words in order to drive a demon out. And because they didn't have spiritual force and spiritual power behind these words, the demons didn't recognize their authority to drive them out. And they turned around and attacked. 
was a shameful result for the seven sons of a high priest who were roaming exorcists. So the lesson here is, if you want to drive a demon out, you gotta have spiritual power, you gotta have spiritual authority, you gotta be in spirit, filled in spirit, led. This is not just something that you need to do willy-nilly. You're going into a spiritual warfare with a entity that can not only take you on spiritually, but could also take you on physically. And you have to be prepared for that. These seven sons of Sceva were not prepared for that. So now let's finish. Let's go uh, uh, with the chapter starting in verse 17 and 8 through verse 20. It says this, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So the reputation of the Lord found greater fame. So the great movement of the Spirit that started in Ephesus right, led to repentance from occult practices. It led them to put aside these occult practices, these practices of witchcraft, these practices of sorcery, these practices of saying incantations, of writing special books that were full of incantations that would help them with all sorts of things, whether it be driving out demons or healing the sick or whatever it might have been. What we see is we see that these people who came to believe made a clean break with these things. Or they would be things like amulets, they would be things like incantations, or whatever else it may have been. And we see that those who practiced magic began burning their books of magic, right? And so what's so important about that, right, is that Ephesus was particularly noted for such a cult, right? It's for such writings with books of magic, of what sort of things we would now call devil worship, right? And so some of these books were known as Ephesian, right? And that's how prominent this was. So the denunciation and the burning of these books, which were, by the way, voluntary actions. This wasn't a group of people from the church getting together and burning a bunch of banned books. No, 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 no. This was a bunch of people who had met Jesus destroying what was in their past so that they couldn't turn back to it. That's how big of a power this was. And it demonstrated the power of the gospel in a hotbed of demonic activity, right? Because all of this is related to the worship of Satan, not to the worship of God. So all told, these books that they burned and that they destroyed and they denounced are worth, <coughs> excuse me, worth about 50,000 pieces of silver. Right? So at a drachma a day, understand this, right, this is big important, the amount was almost 137 years of work. Vast fortune. Imagine that. So imagine if you make $30,000 a year, multiply that by 137, you're going to get an astronomically large number. These people burned millions, if not 
behavior and they completely turn their back on their old life. So in other words, what happens are to burn these works and not sell because they have sold them they make some money off it. And they would have still been around. they would have still been able to entice others. They still would have been able to entice them back. They burn them, they destroy them. It was an omission that these works were dangerous, which they were these were very dangerous works. It's dangerous to keep these kind of things around. It was also a demonstration of these converts commitment to Christ. Right? And so what we're gonna see here at the very end of this, right? Now let's read this last two verses, right? Because here's who comes to big point. So after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Acacia. After I have been there, he said I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Estrus, to Macedonia. Well, he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So from this point forward, the focus is on Paul's journey to Rome, even though he would spend a long time in the province of Asia and in the province of Judea. But you see Paul's last days in Ephesus establish how profoundly Christianity had spread throughout Ephesus and prepare us to hear a future opposition. So from a theological perspective, it demonstrates the providence of God as he fulfilled his plans through the believers. And that is where we will pick up tomorrow. As we see the riot that Christianity caused in the city of Ephesus. In order for you to be prepared for that, here's what you need to read. So you need to read Nehemiah 7, 73. 921, you need to read 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18, Psalm 33, 12 through 22, and Proverbs 21, 11 